Good morning. How many of you like to be encouraged? Anyone? On the other side, how many of you would say you've already received all the encouragement you need for the rest of your life? Anyone? No, we all like to be encouraged and we all need it. Today we're beginning a study of the book of 1 Thessalonians and taking a chapter a week. I'm, Lord willing, doing the first two. <clears throat> what we're going to see today is that Paul starts his letter out with various encouragements to the Thessalonians. So we'll look at that. Let me first, though, invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17, because this is when the church in Thessalonica was started. And I'll comment on a few verses. Acts 17, 1 through 10. Now when they, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer, which means die, and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. He is the Messiah you Jews, we Jews have been looking for for decades, for centuries. So verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Cyrus, Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, and this is important, this is the Jewish leaders, not the average Jewish man or woman on the street. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason, who was their host, providing them room and board began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. I have to also read you the King James Version because it's become a classic. These that have turned the world, what? Upside down. It'd be great if that were our description. Verse 7, and Jason has welcomed them. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. We're going to see today that the Thessalonians were under a lot of persecution. And this gives us one of the reasons why. See, the, the Caesars, who were the kings over the entire Roman Empire, they regarded themselves as a god. And consequently, they wanted people to bow to them, to also proclaim that they are gods. Well, Christians couldn't do that. And so they were being persecuted for that reason. And in fact, a lot of, a lot of the persecution even went as far as maybe some merchants not selling to them needed things. Um, maybe attacking their children even. Second reason that they were under persecution is because, and probably you studied this in high school, 
because of all the Greek gods that were there or that were there to be worshipped, at least that's what many people believed. With the gods, you didn't so much keep them happy as much as you at least tried to not make them mad. So there were various rituals that people would go through, various dinners and all kinds of things. Well, when these Jewish people and Gentiles became Christians, they would no longer go through those kinds of motions. And if you think of a family and you have, say, four kids and three are still towing the line and one is trying to tell you, no, 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 this, this is all wrong, you can see how that would cause a lot of struggle in families. Plus, the family would be saying, maybe this God or gods are going to get angry with us because of this one person in our family. So the Thessalonians were really catching it. Let me go back to verse 6. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowds and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So that's how the Thessalonian church began in a city with lots and lots of gods and lots, therefore, of opposition and persecution. The Thessalonians, as you can imagine, needed some encouragements. And Paul was very happy to send those along the way. Let's now look at how he does that. Turn, please, to 1 Thessalonians, or you can follow. 1 Thessalonians, beginning with verse 1. Paul Silvanus, which would be his Latin name, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, or knowing that you are elect, He has chosen you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, yet with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
Paul's going to encourage them in this chapter. And the way he does it is, in a broad sense, he shows them appreciation and admiration for their Christian walk and for their willingness to hang in there, to hold on to the faith in spite of all the things that they were going through. We could say 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in a broad sense, has two parts. First four verses talk about the church. The next six talk about the gospel. And that all makes sense, doesn't it? Take the gospel, people believe it, they form a church. What does a church do? They spread the gospel to other people. They become believers. What do they do? Form a church, and then they also spread the gospel. The main idea we're going to look at today is found in verse 2, the main idea of this passage. And it's simply, we give thanks to God always for all of you. They give thanks. You know, I wonder how many of us start our prayers with thanks? Pretty much every time. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I know I don't as well. In fact, in Romans 1, we won't turn there, but Paul said, as he's getting ready to write this very long letter, he said, first of all, I thank God for you. My prayer life isn't that way, and I see this as an encouragement to me, and I hope it is one to you as well. Before we go further, I'd like to ask you to guess the answer to the following question. Now, this won't count against your final grade, and it is a guess, because if you know the answer to these, you're smarter than I am, which may not be saying it as much. But the first question, how many times is the word brothers used in 1 Thessalonians? Your version may have brethren or brothers and sisters. How many times do you see that phrase in 1 Thessalonians? Just uh, don't shout it out, but just get, come up with a number in your mind. I will say it's less than 20 and more than one. Second question, how many times in this book is the second coming of Christ mentioned in the entire book? Again, fewer than 20, more than one. Paul says they give thanks. And they give thanks to God for what the Thessalonians are doing because they know ultimately God is the one who's responsible for saving them and for sanctifying them, for helping them hang in there in spite of the opposition helping them to grow in their godly character. And so, again, that's why he thanks God, not the Thessalonians. However, by publicly thanking God, that is through this letter, that becomes an encouragement to the Thessalonians. You all know as well that if you want something to be repeated, you reward it. And I can think like in my wife's class as she teaches first grade, she may say, Oh, I'm happy to see Jeremy sitting at his seat with his hands to himself, his feet to himself. And what happens to the other students? Most of them, they suddenly stand up or sit up straight, pull their hands and feet in and do the same because they want some praise as well. What's the same idea? Paul is pointing out these good things ultimately that God has produced in them. 
But saying God loves you that much that he's willing to produce in you and through you all of these good things. How often do Paul, Silas, and Timothy pray? He uses the words constantly or always or without ceasing. Now you may wonder, how could they really do that? And is Paul not exaggerating? Well, on the one hand, they used always a little differently than we do here in America. But the Jews spoke, excuse me, the Jews prayed three times a day. And so I'm thoroughly convinced that during at least one of those prayer times, Paul and his group prayed for the Thessalonians, but as well they prayed for the Galatians, the Ephesians, all the churches that Paul and his team had helped plant. And I'm sure his prayer list only grew as time went on. By the way, your verse 2 and verse 3 may read a little differently than what we had on the slides. The reason for that is the word unceasingly or constantly is at the very end of a verse. And so it can, in the Greek, which they didn't have the verse divisions there, but in the Greek, the Greek could say that the constantly could go with mentioning in prayer, or it could go with remembering your good works. It doesn't change it at all, because if they were praying for them, it's constantly is because they were constantly remembering them. And if they were constantly remembering them, they were always praying for them as well. So number two, how many did they give thanks for? All of them. Paul emphasizes that. Emphasizes it by stating, for you all. And that includes, as we'll see in future chapters, that includes some who were living immorally, some even who were attacking Paul's reputation, claiming that he was here for a short time, but he doesn't want to, apparently doesn't want to come back and visit us. So why is that? <clears throat> Number three, why is it that they give thanks? Because they, Paul, Silas, and Timothy could see the living proof that God is at work in these Thessalonians. They saw the changed lives. They saw the joy imparted by the Holy Spirit. They saw the fact that these new believers had a new nature, new motivations, new purposes in life, and they gave thanks to God for bringing that about. How did they give thanks? While praying for them. And I make that a point simply because, again, it's so easy for us to pray for people, especially people that bug us, but we're less likely to thank God for people, especially those who bug us. Paul, nevertheless, thanked God for all of them. And I want to issue that challenge to you and me as well, that no matter who we know that might, whether they're even a Christian or not, give thanks to God for something about them. And honestly, it may take a little bit of mental energy to come up with a good reason or two as to why to thank God for them. So I want to issue the, you and me this challenge. For the next seven days, next seven days, begin every one of your prayers with thanks. may just be a sentence or two, but try to get into the habit of starting every prayer with thanks.
What are some of the specific actions, characteristics they saw in the Thessalonians for which they were giving thanks? We're going to look at five of these. First one was that they were energetic. They were engaged in living out their Christian life. They were actively involved in the lives of other people. They were working because of their faith, prompted by faith. They were laboring, which was propelled by their love for God and others. And they were being steadfast through difficulties. And that steadfastness was produced by hope. We'll look at that word in just a moment. Galatians 5, 6 says this. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but, and he kind of leaves a few words out, but we can add them, but here's what matters. Here's what does count. Faith working through love. Faith working through love. And there's three of the key words that Paul repeats here in 1 Thessalonians. The normal Christian life, guys, is, and I know you know this, but just as a reminder, it's outward. It's involving others, for others, and for the Lord. I just want to ask, when's the last time that we did something because we love others, out of our faith in God who who we know wants us to do these good things. When's the last time we did something good for people who, A, wouldn't pay us, and B, wouldn't thank us? We ought to be able to come up with a good list of that. And if not, then you can set yourself to working on that from this point forward. Verse 3 also tells us that these believers exhibited steadfastness or patience, the inability to, to give up, endurance. And why? Because they were motivated by hope. Unfortunately, in English, we use the word hope very differently than the Bible does. In English, we would say things like, I hope the commanders have a winning season. I hope the commanders have a winning game. (laughs) We say hope, we wish, because what? Because we don't know the outcome. We don't know how it's going to end. So the best we can say is, this is what I desire. That is not how the Bible uses the word hope. In fact, if I could change anything with Bible translations, I would, every time they use the word hope, I would want to have a footnote to the side saying confident expectation because that's what hope is in the Bible. It's a confidence and it's an expectancy. It's not a wish because it's based on something that's real. What is it based on? The word hope in the Bible is used talking about Christ's second return and talking about the time that God will ultimately mop everything up in this ugly world and he will rule not only heaven but earth itself in full righteousness. That is what's been promised. Consequently, it's not a wish. 
It is a hope. I'll use the biblical word. But make sure in your minds from now on, when you read, when you come across the word hope, you don't think it means wish. In the Bible, that is. It means confident expectation. And so what Paul was saying is because these people knew the end, they didn't know when the end would be, but they knew God was going to win in the end and straighten everything out, reward the good, punish the bad. Because they had that confidence, they were able to remain steadfast in spite of their persecutions. I think just um, that example is really a challenge to many of us, and I hope you'll take it in, a, in that way. Circumstances in our lives may not change. Nevertheless, we can still have confidence in him, confidence he's going to set things right one day, because after all, he does have the whole world in his hands. Next, they were elect. Elect. Election is a huge theological issue in which godly people disagree on some of the particulars, I want to say just a few things about them. First, election is rooted in God's love for his people, as you see right there in verse 4. He calls them brothers. I know you're chosen brothers loved by God. Many times when we see the word elect or chosen or election, the word love is very close to it in the Bible. Because election flows out of God's love. In the Old Testament, Israel was the elect group. But they were elect for a purpose. God wanted them going out to the world and explaining and teaching the world who he was. And what his standards are. Instead, many of them, because of knowing that they were chosen, they kind of sat back and said, we foreign, no more. We're the chosen, the rest of you, who cares about you? That's not at all what God wants us to do. That's not how the Bible talks about election. The first word I asked you was how many times in 1 Thessalonians is the word brothers or brethren or brothers and sisters used? 14 times in this book. Now, please be honest. How many of you guessed exactly 14 one person. All right. By calling these people elect, and this was a church primarily composed of Gentiles, that's why they were being persecuted so much, because they were the ones leaving idolatry. The Jews didn't fall into idolatry in New Testament times. They did in Old Testament times. But... Forgot what I was going to say. And it was going to be the most brilliant thing you've ever heard. <laughs> okay, number two. Election is always used to refer to believers, not to unbelievers. People like to speculate some about who among the unsaved may be elect. The Bible doesn't give us that option. It doesn't talk about that. And neither should we waste our time on that as well. Thirdly, election is a doctrine that's given to encourage believers. 
and especially during our worst times of suffering, encouraging them that as God's children, even though he's letting you go through horrendous times, he still will win in the end and you are on, by his grace, if you're his child, you are on the winning team. How did Paul know they were elect? This is interesting. He says so in verse 5. He said, because our gospel didn't come to you. Let me say it positively. Our gospel came to you, but not only in words, it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel came to them in words. And guys, we have to, when we present the gospel, it is words-based. It's not words only, but we have to tell them who God is, what his standards are, what sin is, and how they can be right in his eyes. It's easier to live a godly life in front of people than to present the gospel lots of times. We need to do both because they can't be saved simply by looking at us. They wouldn't know how. They have to hear it. Gospel came to them in words, but Paul said it also came to them in power, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Why was that important? I didn't put this verse, I don't think, in the slides, but... 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. We need God's Holy Spirit working in people's minds and hearts to get rid of that blindness and to let them or enable them to see for the first time maybe who Christ is, what he did why he did it, and how they can appropriate that, take that for themselves. The Holy Spirit was powerfully working in these people. And by definition, the Holy Spirit works behind the scenes. or works invisibly. So they couldn't see it, but, and Paul couldn't see it, but he saw the results of it. And that's why, guys, we can have boldness in sharing our faith God is at work in people's hearts and minds. You won't see that, though hopefully at some point you can see the results of that. But nevertheless, when you present the gospel, be convinced that God is at work behind the scenes. He's doing what only he can do. (coughs) Therefore, someone's salvation doesn't depend on your words or your IQ or charm or your great looks. It (laughs) depends on the life-giving power of God only. So the gospel was presented to them. They heard it. They understood it. They received it, which means they believed it. That's how we know anyone is elect. Remember, that's the question, the issue Paul was, was settling or explaining. The only way we can know someone is elect is when and only after They have received Christ as their Savior and Lord. You don't know ahead of time. You only know after the fact. And that's what Paul was saying. We brought you the gospel. You responded. That's how we know you're elect. Consequently, the doctrine of election, and some people struggle with this, the doctrine of election does not eliminate the need for teaching and preaching and proclaiming the gospel. In fact, it requires it. It requires us to do our part. 
I don't know how it all fits together between God's sovereignty and people's ability to make choices. I, but we don't have to figure it out. God's got it in his hands. You know, and another thing, if we totally understood God, that would mean we were superior to him. We have two puppies. I don't even understand them <laughs> completely. I can expect they'll do this. Instead, they do that, and I'm just befuddled. Why do we think we can waste even a second or two of time trying to figure out God and his ways? He's made what he wants us to know. He's made it clear. Let's focus on that. That's more than enough. In fact, Mark Twain said one time, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that scary, scare me or worry me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand. Because I don't think he was a believer, but he knew enough about the Bible to realize that he wasn't living up to God's commands. He thought if he just uh, avoided God, God would avoid him. Not how it works. Next, they were exemplary. Exemplary, and I'm using that word in two directions. On the one hand, they followed the example, the godly example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but also they became examples to other people. They imitated the day-to-day -day lifestyle and obedience of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And by the way, plus... At that point in time, that was the only Bible they had. Sometimes we read the Bible and it looks like Paul's kind of bragging, follow me as I follow Christ. That was the way they taught morality back then. Again, everybody didn't have their own Bible. So if God has made a change in one person's life, then you, and it's because, again, that God made the change, then if you want to do the same you have accepted Christ as your Savior, back then and now, the wise thing to do would be to learn from their example. That's why Paul said, follow my example. So they imitated the day-to-day -day lifestyle and obedience. They imitated Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who remember now, they had seen. And Paul says they imitated the Lord, whom they had never seen. How did they do that? By enduring their suffering and their persecution for living out their faith. And on top of that, they did so with joy given by the Holy Spirit. One of the things the Lord used to change, <coughs> excuse me, to convince me of the truthfulness of the gospel was a talk a woman gave when I was in college. Her husband had died about a year earlier. Uh, he had been a football player, and you know, it was one of those tragic things. She came and spoke, and yes, she spoke with tears, but she also spoke with joy. And I remember sitting at the back, because that was my favorite place, sitting at the back and, and just kind of marveling at what she was saying. I had come there with a group of people, walked there. I told them, guys, I'm walking home by myself. And as I did at some point, I said, God, if you are real enough 
to make that kind of change in that woman's life, to bring her joy in the midst of grief. And as I say, she was grieving. You can have joy and grief at the same time. But God, if you're big enough to do that, then I submit myself to you. You've got to be real. Because there's no other explanation for why that woman could talk for about an hour of her struggles, yes, but also her triumphs, and do it with a smile and with, with palpable joy. <clears throat> I think we're at point C. They became examples to all of Greece of how to live the Christian life, especially in the midst of in the midst of opposition. So they followed Paul's example, but also because they believed and held firm to their newfound faith in Christ, Paul and the rest of them could use the Thessalonians as an example, saying these guys accepted the Lord in spite of opposition. Y'all can too. Next point is a mistake here. It should be evangelistic. I think I repeated the word exemplary. Number three should be evangelistic. It says, The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that's all of Greece, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. You know, my mom used to do that in kind of a negative way. On Saturdays, that was our day to, to make sure our rooms were clean. So she would say something like, Barry, I don't need to remind you that this is Saturday and that you need to clean your room. She didn't need to remind me, but she just did, right? <laughs> On the very opposite end of that, Paul was saying, the news about y'all has gone so far that when we go to other places and get ready to talk about the gospel and Use y'all as an example. People there say, hey, Paul, you don't need to say a word. We already know about it. Now, here again, Paul says, so we have no need to say anything. But he said it. That was an encouragement to the Thessalonians. And keep in mind, this was in a letter. A letter that could be read at just about any time. A letter maybe even later on shared with other churches. And shared with us. So did they know that we would be reading their letter 2,000 years later in Waldorf, Maryland? I can't imagine that they did, but we are. They were encouraged that their faith was going out. And I want you to be encouraged. People you've witnessed to as well as lived before a gracious, godly Christian life. Some of them, at least, will pick up on that and say, maybe they'll say, you know, I don't understand why so-and-so is so weird, but she never loses her temper. And she always seems to have a joy. She's not real somehow, but I, I've had people, I've overheard people say things like that. Some say it to my face. Not about me, about other people. <laughs> I wish they were talking about me. So they spread the gospel throughout Greece and even beyond, wherever the Thessalonians may have traveled. 
By the way, Thessalonica was a huge city, about 200,000 people. And it was the capital of the province of Achaia. We don't have provincial capitals. We have state capitals, which is essentially the same thing. So they would have started, say, in Annapolis if they had come to Maryland. Letter C, B, Paul is thrilled about the good reports he's been given. And he commends them by saying, we hear good things about you. Number four, they eliminated their idolatrous beliefs and they embraced the true God. They turned completely to God, that's belief. They turned completely away from idolatrous beliefs and practices, that's repentance. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Does an unbeliever need to believe or repent? Yes, both. As a result, and we don't have time, but really invite you to meditate on this next point. As a result of their salvation, they voluntarily enslaved themselves to God. See, at that time, if you had a debt, you could make yourself a slave to someone for a certain period of time and pay that debt off. What they realized was we can't pay God back. The least we can do, though, is fully serve him. Same idea is spoken of when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Which Paul wrote in Romans 12, become living sacrifices. Present yourself as a living dead person or a living dead animal. You know, once that sheep was dead, it was fully usable by whoever wanted to use it. The priest in dividing up the parts of the animal, God, Paul says, in essence, to us and to everyone, this is the right thing to do. If you are a believer, voluntarily, fully commit yourself to obeying God. Lastly, they waited for God's son to come back to earth. They were waiting for his son to return. Last question, the quiz question I ask you, how many times... Is the second coming of Christ mentioned in this book? How many of you guessed five? Well, I did. <laughs> five times. Five times it's mentioned in this book. I invite you as we read through it, hunt those out. Lastly, Paul says, God's son, who is he? He will come from heaven because he was raised from the dead earlier. God's son came to earth previously in the person of Jesus, so he's real. In fact, Jesus' name is included in sentences from that time. And um, I'm going over time. Anyway, he was a real person. And lastly, God's son will deliver us from God's future wrath. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for all you do for us, all you have done, and all that you will do. Help us, Father, to remember that when we're down, we can turn to your word, this chapter, as well as other places, and receive encouragements from you. God, thank you most of all for sending your son, Jesus, to be the Savior of the world when he died on the cross in our place. And we pray if anyone does not know Christ today, He or she will come to know the Savior before they leave this building. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.